0: That supremely joyful music you just heard was the opening of Ludwig von Beethoven's String Quartet, Opus 18, Number 6. It comes from a new album by the Dover Quartet, Beethoven, Complete String Quartets, Volume 1, The Opus 18 Quartets. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records, and those of you who have listened before know, every time we come out with a new release on Sadie Records, we come out with a new Classical Chicago podcast. And I'm thrilled that my guest on this podcast is Milena pajaro Staat, the violist of the Dover Quartet. Hi, Milena. Hi. So it's great to have you on here. This is such a gorgeous recording. I can't wait to start talking about it and playing more music for people. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about the quartet and the history of the quartet. How and when was the Dover Quartet formed?
1: We all met in undergrad together at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, Actually, the two violinists in the quartet, Joel and Brian, they entered the school one year before the cellist and I, before Camden and I. And they actually had known one another from a festival from when they were 13-year-olds or something like that. They had known each other for years. And so when they showed up at Curtis for their undergrad, it was just a natural decision that they play in a quartet together. One year later, in 2006, Camden and I entered the school And that quartet that Joel and Brian were in was just one of the great student groups at the school. We admired them from afar for a while. Camden and I played together, actually, the first few years at Curtis. We were always in a chamber group together, mixing and matching with different violinists, pianists. But the two of us really loved playing together. The thing, I think, for Camden and I that really stuck out when it came to working with one another was that we had so much fun when we didn't agree on things to discuss and hear each other's points of view. And the collaboration between the two of us felt so natural from the beginning that we were on the lookout for completion of a string quartet, as it were. So we considered ourselves the bottom half of a topless quartet. <laughs> we admired Joel and Brian from afar. And a few years into our time at school, at probably the end of 2008, there was a school-wide Second Viennese Project they wanted a quartet to play Alban Berg opus three and I had actually played it already I was obsessed with the piece I love that piece so much and so Camden and I asked Joel and Brian if the two of them would do the project with us we had to learn it very quickly it was incredibly intense and going through that together and playing that first concert together was so exhilarating that we very very soon after hesitantly approached one another with the hope that everyone would be taking it as seriously as the next person. I think everyone was equally excited about this new quartet that we had tried out and wanted to keep going for it. So I guess it was my third, maybe fourth year at Curtis when we really solidified that we wanted to be a serious quartet, do competitions, try to make a career of it. And we ended up staying an extra year at Curtis just for the sole purpose of focusing on the quartet. And then our biggest mark of marriage and commitment was deciding to forego any individual master's degrees that we may have originally thought we were going to do and enroll in a quartet program. So we went to Rice University from 2011 to 2013 to do a master's degree in string quartet. So we auditioned as a package deal.
0: (laughs) And how did the name come about?
1: Well, we had gone through a few names. We always wanted something that would harken back to our origin at Curtis in Philadelphia. If you dig into Google really far back, you might see the Old City String Quartet somewhere. And that was us. That was referencing Old City, Philadelphia. But we ended up cleaning up the name, making it shorter, easier to remember, easy to spell. And we chose Dover because it's a sneaky connection to Curtis in the sense that Samuel Barber, one of our favorite composers, was a student at Curtis. And after he graduated, he wrote a gorgeous piece called Dover Beach for him to sing with the Curtis Quartet. And it was premiered at Curtis. Much like that piece, Dover Beach was born at Curtis, so were we. So that's where we got Dover from. And
0: uh, you had some important mentors at the Curtis Institute, if I recall correctly.
1: Yes. The first one that comes to mind, the person who was one of our absolute main coaches, who we played for almost every single week when we were a quartet, was Shmuel Ashkenazi of the Vermeer Quartet. He was definitely one of our most picky and demanding and harshest critics and coaches So this was even more meaningful when he said it to us very early on in the quartet. He asked if we had ever considered getting married. So he kind of gave us that little spark of excitement that maybe we could do it for our lives. Other huge influences on us were the Guarneri Quartet. Two of us actually studied with Guarneri Quartet members. I studied with Michael Tree, the violist, and Camden studied with Peter Wiley, who was the cellist to replace David Sawyer in the quartet. As a group, we played for both of them, and we got coachings from both of them as well as Arnold Steinhardt. To complete the quartet, I have also purchased a bow that John Daly made. (laughs) John Daly, the second violinist of the Guarneri Quartet, is also a bow maker. So Guarneri's were huge influences on us, and I would probably say that aesthetically, we grew up idolizing them. We love the fact that they always sounded so cohesive and so much like a unit, and they really seem to go together, yet somehow each individual in the group has such a distinctly different voice, and that was something that we really, really love about that quartet.
0: So you finished the program at Rice in 2013, and that's a year you swept all the prizes at the 2013 Banff Competition. You've also gone on to win the Cleveland Quartet Award, and you're a rare ensemble winner of the Avery Fisher Career Grant a rise that Strings Magazine has called meteoric and also I love the quote from the New Yorker which has called the Dover the young American string quartet of the moment.
1: We just hope it's a long <laughs> <Yeah>. moment. <laughs> well, still, seems like it has <laughs> been so
0: far and of course I should note that you are the quartet in residence for the Bean School of Music at Northwestern University which gives you a teaching base in Chicago and hence the connection mm-hmm to Sadie Records. Yes. Oh, and I should actually list the members. You've talked about them by their first names, but let me give the full membership of the quartet, which is Joel Link and Brian Lee violins. Of course, Milena is the violist and Camden Shaw is the cellist. Uh, What would you say have been some of the highlights for you?
1: Career highlights? Ah, man. Well, the first one, the obvious one that comes to mind was just being at the BAM competition and winning. It was completely surreal, and that experience just changed the course of our career so drastically we couldn't even have possibly mentally prepared for it. So that definitely stands out. Northwestern is a close place in our hearts. It's the first institution that we've been closely associated with. It's the first university teaching residency that we've had, and it's just become such a family and been so rewarding, and we've learned a lot throughout the course. I mean, when we started teaching there, we were quite young. It was 2014, I believe, we started teaching there. And so we've learned a lot and it's actually become one of my absolute favorite things to do is to coach chamber groups. And especially when we get to go to Northwestern regularly, we develop more consistent relationships with the students and it's just been so rewarding. That's definitely a quartet highlight for me. That was a surprise one because when we got into the quartet, it was just about performing. And this aspect of the career has been just so satisfying and so rewarding.
0: Well, since the album at hand, of course, is the first of what will eventually be three volumes making up the complete Beethoven string quartets, let's talk about the quartet's history with Beethoven, including where you've performed the full cycle a few times by now, I believe.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. We performed the full cycle in Buffalo on a series called the Slee Cycle, which is specifically for Beethoven cycle. We've performed the entire cycle in Montreal at a summer festival, and we've performed the entire cycle at the University of Connecticut at the Jorgensen Center. We did it in different orders each time. The Slee Cycle has its own prescribed order that every quartet that goes there plays it in that order. One of the cycles, one we did in Montreal, I came up with a, an order, I can't tell it to you by memory now, it was a couple of years ago, but my whole purpose of that specific order was to connect pieces from different Beethoven time periods, the early, the middles, and the late. I usually at least had one of each, if I could, from each time period on each program, although some of the late quartets are so large, there can only really be one other piece maybe on the program. And I linked them motivically or with key relationships and things like that. It was a really fun project
0: to do. Now, what's it like living with these quartets, and how has the interpretation changed over the years?
1: That's a really great question. It's amazing living with them. It's really like living with 16 different people who you can never stop getting to know. Is you, you're always learning more. You're always figuring out more. You're always digging deeper. You're always having these little aha moments where you realize how something links to something else or from piece to piece how they're related to one another. So our interpretation, it has changed over the years, but it feels like we're both always getting closer and always realizing that there's just no end in sight to that discovery.
0: Well, there's so much more I want to talk about about these quartets, but I think we should get back to some music now. And when I asked you to pick movements that were special to you, the first one you mentioned was the slow movement of the string quartet Number 1, which is marked Adagio, affettuoso e appassionato. What makes this movement special for you?
1: To me, this is such a quintessentially Beethovenian movement, while also being so clearly from the early period. It's a very special and unique movement in the sense that it's also programmatic. He wanted this movement to depict the tomb scene of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The D minor key, this dark, and it's actually clearly linked to so much of Mozart, Mozart using D minor for tragic associations. Just so unique and so evocative, especially in the center of this much more lighthearted work in general, it really stands out. It's one of my favorite slow movements of all time. It
0: certainly has a great deal of pathos to it, especially Mm. in, in your performance. Let's hear some of that now. Here is an excerpt from the second movement, the adagio of Beethoven's string quartet, number one in F major, opus 18, number one, although this movement, as you point out, is in D minor. Here is the Dover Quartet. You just heard a portion of the very moving adagio, affettuoso, ed appassionado second movement of the String Quartet Number 1 by Beethoven, Opus 18 No. 1 from a new album by the Dover Quartet, Beethoven Complete String Quartets, Volume 1, the Opus 18 Quartets, and it is performed by the Dover Quartet, whose violist Milena Pajaro-Van is my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast. Before we move on to more of the cycle. Can you give a little context to this adagio and talk about this quartet number one in general?
1: Well, this quartet, we know Beethoven didn't actually write this quartet first. He wrote the opus 18 number three first, yet he chose to catalog this one first in the opus 18 group. He felt that he was showing his personality so clearly through this piece. You can definitely tell that there are Influences from Haydn and Mozart, especially the halting conversational aspect in this first movement. It really reminds me of Haydn a lot, yet it has this Beethovenian impetuous stamp of his personality on it. The piece is really spright and bubbly, but you have the second movement, which we just heard, which is in such stark contrast to the rest of the piece. It's completely lyrical, absolutely tragic. It has some of these halting moments, but it's much more tragic and not playful. It's a standout movement. The very last movement is so reminiscent of one of his string trios. The last movement of the C minor string trio is so similar to this. So it's very interesting. You can see that he's grasping at these same ideas, which will eventually bring him to his late period.
0: Now, we talked about the quartet's history with Beethoven a bit before. Why record the quartets now?
1: Well. Deciding to record the Beethoven quartets, this is something that we've always wanted to do since the inception of the quartet. I mean, Beethoven quartets are the iconic repertoire in the whole canon of string quartets. We did want to wait till we had done a few cycles, which we have, so we've gotten to know every single quartet in performance as well as in the practice room. But then something about recording, which I really like this philosophy, it's easy to think about recording and see it as an immortalization of how you play a certain piece, but in reality, it's a snapshot of where you are in that moment in time, your relationship to the piece, our relationship as colleagues, all of that is just a snapshot in time. And so we thought, why wait? Why not just dive into it now? We've played all the quartets. It's going to be a huge project. It's also the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth this year and just seemed like perfect timing and hopefully it won't be the last time but it'll definitely be the
0: first Mm -hmm. one. (laughs) Fair enough. In her notes to the album Beethoven scholar Nancy November cites what she calls the theatricality of the Opus 18 quartets. How do you feel this aspect in your approach and in your performance?
1: I completely agree with Beethoven they're always such drastic contrasts of mood and character and even just louds and softs and key centers that just by nature they're theatrical. And these ones especially, the Opus 18 quartets, are so playful and conversational that it really feels like you're <laughs> basically four actors on stage in a very vibrant theatrical production.
0: Oh, and by the way, I should note that people can access those notes even if they don't have the physical CD. Uh, if you just go to the page for this album on our website, which is cedirecords.org. Records.org. There's always a tab there for reading the notes or downloading the whole booklet, and I think these notes are very much worth reading. Since you mentioned the conversational aspect, the next excerpt we've chosen is from the quartet number no. two, which is known as the Compliments or Greetings Quartet because of its frequent question and response figures. Uh, these are most famously in the first movement, but they are also definitely in the Allegro Molto Quasi Presto Finale, which we're about to hear an excerpt from. So, would this be a good example of that theatricality we were just talking about?
1: Oh, absolutely. It's absolutely so charming and incredibly theatrical and lots of back and forth between the instruments. One of my favorite moments in this movement is at the recap, where you hear all the same material of the this little sprightly main melody, first theme. In the first violin, well, it starts out in the cello, but then when in the beginning of the piece there were just eighth notes as accompaniment, suddenly this time you have the cello and the viola doing this really, really fast arpeggio out of nowhere, And it's so funny and so shocking. Only Beethoven would have done something like that.
0: So before we get to the excerpt, what else strikes you about this quartet in general?
1: This one, in many ways, we've, as a quartet, we've always found it to be more elusive and delicate than the others. It's one of my favorites. The first Opus 18 quartet I ever played before I even switched to viola when I was still a violinist. It's so sweet. And even with the slow movement, you have this warm C major slow movement in the middle of G major P so even Beethoven here isn't doing his typical huge major minor contrast it's just one of the sunniest pieces of his I can think of and in the slow movement he can't even stay in this slow luxurious place for too long he inserts the little allegro section right in the middle of the slow movement which was also just him messing around with the structure the typical classical structure already so early on.
0: So getting back to the finale, is this movement as fun to play as you guys make it sound?
1: <laughs> I'm glad to it sounds like it's fun to play because it totally is. It's so much fun to play. I always get very excited when we get to that movement.
0: <laughs> well, let's let our listeners in on the joy. So here is an excerpt of the fourth movement, the finale of Beethoven's String Quartet in G Major, Opus 18 Number no. 2, as performed by the Dover Quartet on their new album, Of all of the Opus 18 quartets. You just heard an excerpt from the finale, marked Allegro Molto, Quasi Presto, of Beethoven's second string quartet, at least second number string quartet in G major, opus 18, number 2, on volume 1 of a new cycle by the Dover Quartet on CD Records. This is gonna be eventually three volumes of the complete quartets, but volume one is the Opus eighteen quartets, and if you like what you're hearing, you can purchase the album on CD Records website, cedille or any place else you like to purchase CDs, whether it's Amazon or Archive Music, or if you prefer to stream on Spotify or Apple Music, or if you like the higher resolution formats of HD tracks and prime phonic. Anywhere you consume your music, you can find this album, and I sure hope you will, because it's really some gorgeous playing. In addition to the brilliant performances, like the one you just heard, this is also a terrific sounding album. That excerpt uh, shows off the sound really well. I have to give credit to producer Alan Bice and engineer Bruce Egri. Have you worked with them before, Milena?
1: Yeah, actually, we made a recording of the three Schumann quartets with Alan and Bruce, with their label Azika Records. And we've just really loved working with them. It's always a different chemistry with a producer and an engineer. And we found that the balance of give and take when we're in a session with Alan and Bruce is just so perfect. We can really, really trust Alan's opinion. Alan actually was a violinist and he's got a great ear. So we can trust if he tells us, you know what guys, I know you're obsessing over something, but you've got it. We can trust him and move on while at the same time we know that he also really is going for capturing exactly what we interpretationally and musically feel at every moment so it's been really fun very satisfying working with them
0: also i want to acknowledge the wonderful acoustics of the souder concert hall at the goshen college music center in goshen indiana which is about 25 miles east of south bend Uh, what was it like for you recording there
1: it's been great recording there. It's a really nice sounding hall. It's quite big, quite large, which is actually very great for Alan and Bruce on the engineering side of things because you have a lot more malleability with the sound when you're not just in a tiny dead studio. And it's also just great for the musicians in our morale to be playing in a space that has a really nice
0: sound. At the time we're recording this podcast in late July, I just came back from producing some sessions in that hall with baritone, Will Liverman for an upcoming album, Songs by Black Composers, which will be coming out on Sadie Records in February. I hope people will check that out as well. Now that I've shamelessly mentioned another upcoming Sadie recording, let's talk about the Dover Quartet's history with Sadie. Your previous album was Voices of Defiance. What would you like people to know about that album?
1: Oh, that album was very special to us, very meaningful one. It was kind of hard to record just emotionally, but so rewarding and so worth it. That album included pieces from 1943, 1944, and 1945. The middle one, the one from 1944, was Shostakovich's second quartet, which is just not played as much as you would think in the grand scheme of how huge the Shostakovich quartets are in the literature, and it is such a powerful piece. The piece from 1943 was written by Victor Allman, who was a prisoner at Theresienstadt during World War II, and he wrote the piece on just whatever scraps he could find. It was thankfully saved, and what was left, someone collected and wrote down as into a score, and Victor Allman actually is absolutely tragic, was taken from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz and murdered there within a, a day or two of arriving. And the final piece on the album, in a similar way, actually, this composer Simon Locks would have overlapped that one or two day with uh, Victor Allman in Auschwitz because he was a prisoner at Auschwitz and had a marginally better chance of survival because he was, instead of working out doing manual labor, he was assigned to be the conductor of the Auschwitz Men's Orchestra. That was actually the piece that gave us the idea for the album, the slow movement of that Lachs Quartet has the emotional gravity of something like the Barber Adagio. And it just struck us so incredibly. That was the only movement we heard when we decided, let's do this. Let's learn this piece. Let's record this piece. It's so important to
0: be heard. Lachs was a Polish composer, but he was assigned to play happy German music while people were being sent to the death chambers.
1: He has a book, kind of a memoir, called Music of Another World. And he talks about how his relationship to music became so complicated as a result of his experience at Auschwitz. He was only having to play music and use music as a way to have other prisoners be marched off to be murdered. And he associated it with just so much turmoil and tragedy and conflict and thought of, of music almost as an evil tool more than a, a healing food for the soul, so it was very complicated for him. The string quartet which we recorded was the first thing that he wrote upon liberation of the camps, and he exclusively incorporates Polish folk songs, which would have been the music he couldn't have sung or played or anything while he was in Auschwitz and was probably a safer place in that sense in bringing him back to his childhood.
0: Well, in a lighter vein, your first recording, for CD, was called Tribute, uh, Dover Quartet Plays Mozart, and I should note this was, in fact, the Dover Quartet's recording debut. You want to explain why it was called Tribute?
1: Yes, it was called Tribute in homage to the Guarneri Quartet. Our mentors, our idols and heroes, and the first CD that they recorded, that they put out, were the last Mozart quartets but we had a unique opportunity to have one of the Guarneri Quartet members record with us. So my teacher, Michael Tree, joined us for the C minor Mozart viola quintet.
0: In fact, your album was the same as theirs, and I think it was the last two quartets. And then you added the quintet with Michael Tree, the long, long time violist of the Guarneri Quartet and a mentor to you, as you mentioned, which makes it so exciting. How important was it to your career to have a debut recording back then?
1: Oh, it was extremely important back then. It still would be now, but we were at a point in our career where we had just come from winning this big competition. We had all this new momentum in our career, new vitality, and not having an opportunity to start laying down recordings and build up a canon of our own recordings would have made it harder to continue with the momentum that we had at that time. So it was an incredibly great opportunity to be able to do that debut album.
0: It was a real honor to be able to provide that debut. I should note that Sadie Records, which is of course a label devoted to musicians in and from and associated with Chicago, has provided the debut recording, either complete debut or at least featured debut recording of over 80 different artists, soloists, chamber musicians, and ensembles like the Dover Quartet. So it's a very important part of what we do as well. So now that we've been talking about Mozart, let's come back to Beethoven now and be a good time to talk about, I think, how the Beethoven Opus 18 Quartets compare to his predecessors, Haydn and Mozart, as well as how they then anticipate the later middle quartets.
1: As I was saying earlier about the Opus 18, number one quartet, that one for me is so reminiscent of Haydn, just in its conversational aspect and its quirkiness and jumping around from character to character. And there's actually one of the Opus 18 quartets that is directly inspired by a Mozart quartet, the Opus 18, number five. A major Beethoven quartet, which he modeled after Mozart's A major quartet. It's actually the only one in Beethoven's Opus 18 of all six that has the middle movements order swapped, where the minuet actually comes before the slow movement. And this is the only instance where he does this, and that is the same structure that Mozart used for his A major quartet, K464.
0: And actually, you've anticipated what we're going to play next because, of course, one of the movements you selected was the Andante Cantabile of the Quartet Number 5 in A Major, which is a theme and variations movement, which is also modeled after the theme and variations movement of Mozart's A Major Quartet. Is this something you noted in your preparation? Oh,
1: absolutely. We loved noticing that reverence to Mozart that Beethoven had while he was also so clearly going in his own direction. And in the late quartets, especially, you start to notice that the slow movements, many of them are sometimes hidden, but theme and variation movements, uh, which is really fascinating. He just finds his own way to do it.
0: Now you wrote to me that you actually saw the original sketch of the theme and Beethoven actually changed it before yes. inc- incorporating it in the quartet.
1: It was so fascinating to me because the original little sketch he had for the theme of this movement went like, bum, bum, ba, da, da, dum, bum, bum. and then it just became. He completely simplified it. He just made it a little descending scale and With Beethoven, it just became so obvious to us that he had to do that because when he had the more simplistic, and by simplistic, I mean the beauty of that simplicity, he had so much more possibility of what he could do with it. And changing that theme to be just this simple scale going down, which kind of mirrors the opening of the first movement in a way which goes up, has the scales going up, and then in this movement, he has all the scales going down. It creates such a beautifully serene atmosphere, which then lends itself to have each variation be so drastically
0: different. Are there any variations that are particularly special to you before we play an excerpt?
1: One of the most fun parts of that entire piece to play is the raucous variation between the inner voices when the second violin and viola break out. And it happens right after the most chillingly quiet and still of all the variations which is almost like a very 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 muffled choir right before and then it goes into the most raucous one but i think one of my favorite things about this particular movement is when he takes the theme and some different versions of it that he's created with scales going up and down and starts to layer them on top of one another where so each instrument is playing a different equally important motive at the same time i just find that So beautiful and so expertly crafted.
0: Wonderful. Let's let people hear that then. Here is an excerpt of the theme and variations on Dante Cantabile movement, third movement of Beethoven's string quartet number five in A major, opus 18, number five, as performed by the Dover Quartet. You just heard a portion of the slow movement, Andante cantabile, a variations movement of Beethoven's String Quartet number no. Five in A major from his Opus 18 set, as performed by the Dover Quartet. And the Dover Quartet is violinists Joel Link and Brian Lee, violist Milena Pajaro Vandestadt, and cellist Camden Shaw. And of course I'm talking to Milena right now. We've played excerpts from three of the quartets and we're gonna hear one more from the sixth quartet. But before we do, is there anything you'd like to say about the other two in the cycle, number three, which as you note was actually written first and or the uh, very dramatic number four, which is of course the only one in a minor key.
1: Number three, it's so fascinating to know that he wrote it first because it still sounds so inventive and such a discovery that you would totally believe that it was the third one in the set. It is so sweet, so charming. It has one of the most famous last movements, that presto, that has this reminiscent thing. Everyone always quotes the da 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 when they hear this piece, which is really funny. It is so quirky, so out there and He does this thing, which he does later on, especially I'm reminded of the very, very end of the last movement of the harp, opus 74, where it's just going so fast, like full steam ahead to this really wild, crazy coda. And then he ends with a teensy little piano and pianissimo ending, just completely tricks everyone. You think it's gonna end with this huge finale and then it has the cutest two little final chords.
0: and anything to say about the C minor?
1: The C minor quartet is so interesting to me. First of all, being the only one in a minor key of this set of Opus 18 quartets, it reminds me of the set of three, even earlier, Opus 9 string trios, where the third one in the set is in C minor, and the theme of that trio is so close to that of Opus 131. Is so close to that, but it's in C minor instead of C sharp minor. And in this piece, he reminds me of that trio. And it shows so much of a progression towards what will eventually be 131. He's going from taking this dark stormy C minor and deciding that it's even more painful in C sharp eventually. And the last movement of this quartet as well, ending with these three C major chords It's exactly what he does at the end of the C-sharp minor Opus 131 quartet, where it's just really dark and stormy and intense movement, and then at the end he has these three C-sharp major chords. It's just wild to me how reminiscent of this piece Opus 131 is, and they're so spaced apart chronologically.
0: Well, let's move on to number six, which in fact was written last, And as such, does it perhaps anticipate the later quartets more than the others?
1: In certain ways, absolutely does. One of the most obvious things to me is the way that he introduces the final movement with that malinconia at the opening. Even in the middle quartets, he started experimenting more with this structure of having an almost mysterious or dramatic opening or a really sweet, serene opening adagio when it comes to Opus 74, for instance, 59-3 has a really mysterious opening, and then he takes you to this place you don't know where it's gonna go, and then breaks into the most joyful, lighthearted movement of all. And that is something he started to do a lot more in playing around with the structure like that in his later
0: period. And in fact, because the rest of the quartet is so joyful, the uh, melancholia section becomes quite a shock, quite a contrast. But as I listen to this, I wonder, The unbridled joy makes me think of Mendelssohn, actually. Do you think Mendelssohn may have been influenced by this piece? Oh,
1: absolutely. And actually, when I was talking about those introductions that Beethoven would add, like this adagio here, the malinconio, or the opening of Opus 74, Mendelssohn directly took that idea. And he did the same thing with his Opus 12 quartet, his Opus 13 quartet. He very, very clearly idolized and modeled a lot of his quartet writing was after what Beethoven did before him.
0: And I'm thinking especially of the scherzo. Mendelssohn is so famous for his light elfin scherzos. But you hear that very much in this piece. It's also really athletic. And in general, in these faster Beethoven movements, I feel like there's perhaps a physical demand that goes beyond what Mozart and Haydn asked of their players. Is that fair to say? Yeah,
1: definitely. That is very fair to say. And I, I believe there's even a quote of Beethoven's that goes something like, I care not for your limitations with your instrument. I just write what the spirit moves me to write (laughs) or something like that. So Beethoven knew what he was writing was going to be very tricky and possibly athletic. You know, he was an idealist. And I think that's why we idolize his music so much. Well,
0: and of course, I think that is particularly obvious, that lack of care for the the difficulties in in the scherzo of this piece. Mm -hmm. What was this like to play for you?
1: It's tricky. It's tricky. I know I keep referencing opus 74, but the scherzo of opus 74, I would venture to say, is one of the most athletic of all of the movements of the Beethoven quartets. And it has this similar rhythmic component where he's constantly tricking you as to whether you're in a duple or triple meter. And with the voices as well, like at the same time, one person in the group might be feeling it in a duple meter and the other might be feeling it in a triple meter. And that just makes ensemble so tricky and so nuanced. So it really took some work putting this one together.
0: (laughs) Well, it's pretty impressive what you do with it. So let's let people hear this. We'll hear the whole movement in this case. This is the scherzo of Beethoven's String Quartet Number 6 in B-flat major, opus 18 Number 6, as performed on their new album by the Dover Quartet. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. Just heard the Scherzo, marked Allegro, from Beethoven's String Quartet No. 6. It's the sixth in the Opus 18 set. It's in B-flat major. It's performed there by the Dover Quartet, which has just come out with all six Opus 18 quartets, which is Volume One of their emerging complete Beethoven String Quartet cycle, being released on CD Records, September 11, 2020. And if you like what you've heard, you can find the album on our website, Sadirecords.org. That's c-e-d-i-l-l-e records.org. You can stream it pretty much on any streaming site from the most popular to the most high-end. And of course, it's available as a physical disc on Amazon.com, Archive Music, or wherever you like to get your music. So I certainly hope you will. Now, as we record this podcast, Milena, I believe you are in the middle of recording the next volume, The Middle Quartets. How's that going?
1: It's going great, and we are. We're almost done. There's about a quartet and a half left of the middles to record. We're just about to do that. The challenges have definitely been different than the early quartets, but to be honest, every period, all of the different quartets, the earlies, the middles, the lates, they are equally challenging in very different ways. It's been really fun, actually, diving into them and finding different challenges and different things that are also coming more naturally depending on the types of pieces that we're playing.
0: And does the act of recording these pieces and really working on them in sessions, do you feel that will impact your live performances going forward?
1: Oh, absolutely. It absolutely will. I mean, doing these sessions, it's been a really good learning experience in the sense that we can never be happy with a recording if we feel like we're so conscious that we're recording. So we try very hard to just put ourselves in the performance mindset and have the music just feel very very fresh and in the moment as we play but because we have Alan listening to us through his headphones in the studio we have the chance to go back over and re-record sections and focus on little places that we might not even have noticed from within the group weren't exactly perfect and I know that when we go back to perform we will not only have worked out all of these things gotten to know the pieces even better but not have to fixate on them and it will just be more comfortable It just feel better and performing will just keep getting more and more
0: natural. And that is I think the advantage of working with a good producer you can play and trust his ears right?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah.
0: Well as we're recording this we are in the middle and much more so in this country than some others of the COVID crisis which has of course shut down live performances. How have you been dealing with the cessation of concerts?
1: Well, it was very shocking. It happened very quickly. We ended up, within a span of a couple weeks, finding ourselves with at least four months of no work, with the exception of, thankfully, teaching at Northwestern, which we did virtually for the final quarter, which was tricky and was definitely a learning experience for all of us and for the students. But by the end, I feel that we've found a really good system. There were some silver linings to the, the virtual nature of the, the lessons. One of them is a very odd one. But I noticed that through Zoom, which is what we were using, you can't always trust the volume of the sound that is coming out of your speakers. Mm -hmm. And so, without knowing exactly to what degree or what decibel level the students were playing, I could instead fixate on whether or not they were creating the type of atmosphere or character or emotional articulation that they wanted. And sometimes we can get distracted by volume of sound when we're talking about emotions and and characters and not really pay as much attention to the character of the sound or the specific type of shape and articulation so that was interesting to use that as a silver lining but yeah as a quartet we stayed in touch and we had lots of conversations about future projects and whatnot including this Beethoven project and when to continue recording but we didn't see each other for four straight
0: months Wow, so you've not been doing any online concerts?
1: I was quarantined with my husband and brother-in-law for a few months. And my husband's a cellist. My brother-in-law's a violinist. They're both members of the Escher Quartet. And so we did lots of live stream as a trio, as a string trio. Ah. Um, But as a quartet, no, we've been so nonstop, basically since the Banff competition, that we just treated it as a time to be okay with taking some time off. And so that's what we did. But now, actually, for the last month, we've been back together, after four months apart. Some responses to this crisis from other artists and organizations that have been so inspiring include what we're doing right now, which is we're at the Bravo Vale Music Festival, which we were supposed to be playing at this summer. And they usually bring in the Philadelphia Orchestra, the New York Philharmonic, the Dallas Symphony... And the whole festival was basically canceled, but the director, Anne-Marie McDermott, and the executive director, Caitlin Murray, that was not all right with them. They couldn't stand by and just have the entire summer be canceled, so they put their minds together and came up with something amazing, which is a socially distant summer festival. Their sound engineer had a contact with architects of these things called tiny homes. It's basically what it sounds like, a tiny home. And they converted one of these tiny homes into a mobile concert stage, a tiny little stage that they can drive all around town, from town to town, from neighborhood to neighborhood. And we've been here performing concerts on this little stage in different people's driveways or neighborhoods. Mm. And the audiences will come sit socially distantly apart from one another with masks on. But we have the live exchange of music and it's just been so amazing, and especially right now, (laughs) when we've been starved for it for so long.
0: Wow. Well, that's really inspiring. So you mentioned other projects, besides, of course, continuing to record this Beethoven cycle. What projects do you have coming up, and what do you have to look forward to when sometime next year, we hope, things open up again? Well,
1: one project, which we've been talking about a lot, in a certain way, it is complete, but another way, it's just beginning, and that is our documentary about the quartet. In 2016, actually, the first day of filming for this documentary was on the day of the release of our Mozart album, our debut album. And that was in November 2016. And for about a year and a half, maybe almost two years, the director and the cameraman and different sound engineers followed us all around the world, including they followed Brian to China to visit his family. They followed us to a concert in Salzburg that we played. They came into my yoga class and <laughs> filmed me in yoga class and they created this fantastic documentary that's like a window into our lives, not just what it is to be a string quartet. What is a string quartet or what music do we play or just very classical music centric? It's much more about the personal lives and the effect that this career has on each of us and interpersonal dynamics and what it really means in a very personal way to be working with three other people so intimately every single day. So we had its premiere at the Martha's Vineyard Film Festival this summer, actually just a few weeks ago, and we're fortunate enough to have been the number one most watched film at the festival. So they continue to have it on their website for the last couple weeks. And I guess the ongoing project of that will be to continue to apply to film festivals and to get the documentary out there until it's time for us to have a real distribution of the film. We're very excited about it.
0: Oh, wonderful. We always like to end these podcasts talking about Chicago being the mission of Sadie Records to bring Chicago's music to the world. And as an ensemble that tours so widely while keeping a teaching base in Chicago, what impresses you about the Chicago music scene compared with all the other places you go to?
1: Chicago just has an incredibly vibrant and amazing music scene that has the best balance between local organizations. For instance, the Chicago Symphony and the Lyric Opera are two of the great music institutions in the world. And Northwestern has incredible facilities and houses this fantastic winter festival. But then also bringing in national and international artists. So you really just have everything at your fingertips in Chicago, despite the fact that it's not all along the East Coast, like New York, D.C., Boston. You don't need to be there because everything is there. Everything either is in Chicago already or coming into Chicago. Like, for instance, in the Harris Theater, presenting the concerts for musicians all over the world, including the Lincoln Center Chamber Music Society residency. It's really impressive that a city would have basically everything you could ask for (laughs) in music.
0: Oh, that's so nice, Melina. I know that uh, you have to rush off to, uh, what exactly are you going off to now?
1: Going to play another one of these concerts on the mobile stage. (laughs) Oh, excellent.
0: And what are you playing tonight?
1: We're playing Beethoven Opus 59 number 3 which we are just about to record.
0: <laughs> oh, well that's some nice synergy right there. So mm-hmm. I better let you get to that. <laughs> this has been another Classical Chicago podcast on Sadie Records. I've been talking to Milena Parovandestad of the Dover Quartet about their Beethoven Complete String Quartets Volume 1, all the Opus 18 quartets being released on Sadie Records on September 11. 2020. It's a two disc set, but we're treating it as one disc as far as pricing goes. So hope you'll want to check it out. It's some spectacular playing and really superb sounding recording as well. So it's been great talking to you, Milena. You Uh, too. Have a great concert.
1: Thank you.